The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. As always, I like to remind you that I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my uh, partners, um, uh, Chen Lin and Roger Wiegand, will be joining me later in today's show. Uh, Roger uh, publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin publishes What is Chen Buying?, and what is Chen selling? And we care an awful lot about what Chen is buying and what he is selling because of his remarkable track record. But he'll have some ideas and some comments, uh, hopefully, about a couple of his favorite uh, stock picks today. And uh, we'll be talking to Chen in just a few minutes. We do have uh, this special introductory offer that we like to remind you of each week as well. You can uh, go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, here in New York, in Queens, New York, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I uh, like to tell you, though, that the best website to follow everything that I do, including uh, accessing this show live or by archives, the best way to do that, I believe, is to go to jtaylormedia, that's jaytaylormedia.com. Uh, as I say, you can access this show, all three of those newsletters that I just mentioned, uh, my newsletter called J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks and uh, the other two, Rogers and Chen's, and also various other things that I am involved with, including uh, television appearances. I am, by the way, uh, expected to be on BNN this Thursday at around 4.30 uh, in the afternoon. I also like to tell you that uh, you can follow me uh, on Twitter under the Silver Stocks handle, and I do tweet quite often these days about uh, different things that are on this show and stocks and things that I'm following in my newsletter as well. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And, uh, of course, I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are American Manganese, Arroway Energy, Clifton Star Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Goldrich Mining Company, and Prodigy Gold. 
Well, today is the first day of May, 2012, May Day, of course. Uh, the markets are up very nicely today. The S&P is up uh, to 1411. That's up about 13. The Dow up uh, at 13,318, up 106 points. The Nasdaq is up 19.38. Uh, up to 3065 gold is a uh, 1662 silver at 31 dollars and two cents those were numbers i picked up shortly before this show began um i this uh, as i said is may 1st it's uh it's the may day and the occupy wall street people are coming out in the somewhat warmer weather spring weather here in new york city uh, they are going to be uh, complaining we are told about the banking world, the unfairness, and uh, I have no disagreement with them on that. I think uh, policymakers have really loaded the deck in favor of the bankers. This is one thing we've been talking about on this show all along. The main issue, though, is not the injustice, but how best to fix the injustice, how best to make things good for the most number of people. Uh, and that is where we probably depart a bit. I would be more inclined personally uh, towards a Tea Party solution, at least if it's a Tea Party solution that includes Ron Paul uh, as the spokesperson. Um, well, we've come to really believe, unfortunately, I think the problem uh, that we are facing and one of the reasons we are having uh, some real difficult times ahead of us is that we've come to believe that various things like health care and guaranteed income are our birthright, no matter what we do with our own lives. We've sort of stopped assuming responsibility for our own lives. We've sort of figured that the state should just take care of us. It is a socialist philosophy that I believe is morally wrong. And no matter whether you agree with me or not, I, I think you would agree probably, uh, if you think about it at least, that socialism is an economic system uh, that is regressive and will lead to overconsumption and underproduction. It will lead to a worse standard of living over a long period of time. Capitalism will work best for the most number of people over time. I believe that is, that is, uh, I believe fully that that's true. Indeed, uh, it has been capitalism that has enabled excessive wealth to be shared uh, in a mixed capitalist and socialistic system. But again, uh, the problem that we have, as Ian McAvity pointed out uh, in our discussion at the Wealth Protection Conference in Tempe, Arizona last weekend, is that we are at a point in the United States where almost as many people vote for a living as work for a living. Uh, and to pay for that, not only, of course, socialism, but it's, uh, I would say, our welfare, uh, corporate socialism and um, the military-industrial complex uh, is probably as big or a bigger problem than the socialism that we enjoy or some people enjoy here at home. But to pay for that, Mr. Obama is on the verge of raising taxes uh, of the productive sector of the economy. And I can tell you that Mrs. Taylor and I sit down and, and discuss higher taxes and the prospects of higher taxes, and we say, well, maybe we shouldn't work quite as hard. Maybe we should take some time off and do some traveling and enjoy life uh, and work less hard. Well, that may be a good advice, no matter what the tax structure is, because life is short, and we should uh, we should really enjoy life too, and not just work all the time. But you get the point. The idea is that if you are being taxed uh, to pay for other people to go to the beach and enjoy life, and uh, who assume no responsibility, then why work so hard? And I think this is a problem that we're facing. And of course, it is a problem of overconsumption. The notion that you can have your cake and eat it too is something we would all like to do, but in reality, it doesn't work out for most people most of the time. Well, this was a concept that was brought to my attention as a young man back in 1967. Professor Yoder at Heston College uh, was convinced that when a country debases its currency, 
that it will lead to increased uh, immorality and a reduction in the work ethic of a nation. I think that has has proven to be true since Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971. We have started to increase our consumption and reduce our spending because we have been told we could do that. Pre- uh, credit has been made very, very easy, and so this has been an increasing problem in the Western world. In about a half past the hour today, I will be talking to Richard Duncan, and we'll be discussing his new book called The New Depression, and the subtitle of that book is The Breakdown of the Paper Money System. In his book, Richard worries uh, that unless things are changed very quickly and very radically, we will inevitably run over the cliff into a depression that will be greater by far than anything our grandparents have suffered through. Richard will be with me uh, during the second half of this hour and then during the first half of the second hour as well. We want to listen to what his solutions are, what he would, uh, what he thinks we need to do in order to make things right, in order to straighten things out. Uh, in just a few minutes after our first commercial break, I've got Chen Lin with me. Chen, uh, my partner, uh, will be talking about a couple of his favorite stocks today. I hope he will anyway. For those of you uh, who do not know my partner, Chen Lin, he gave up a spot uh, at Princeton a number of years ago in a Ph.D. Uh, program in aeronautical engineering because he was doing so well in the equity market investing money. To give you an idea how well Chen has done, uh, we do follow one of his accounts, uh, that being one that his wife put $5,400 in an IRA account back in 2003. No new money going in, no money coming out, so it's very easy to track the performance. And as of the end of it was the end of March. We don't have the April numbers yet. That account was worth $1.8 million. So from $5,400 in 2003 to $1.8 million at the end of March of this year, pretty remarkable track record. Chen is able to find investment opportunities that are really quite extraordinary, and we hope that he'll be uh, talking and bringing us up to date on a couple of his favorites uh, right after the, the first break. Um, he does have an uncanny ability to... Uh, to use his intelligence, but he also works extremely hard, um, and and he and it pays off well for his subscribers. Again, uh, you can if you haven't uh, tried Chen's letter, or Roger's letter, or my letter, you can call Claudio Bossi at seven one eight four five seven fourteen twenty six seven one eight four five seven one four two six, or go to miningstocks.com to take advantage of a one time trial subscription offer. I would like to just comment briefly before we go to break about the Wealth Protection Seminar uh, that took place this past weekend. It was a very enjoyable event, as it always is. Uh, at that show, we had some remarkable speakers, Arch Crawford, uh, Ian McAvity, um, Jim Lyles. They have all been on this show in the past. Uh, other really great speakers there, Don Watkins, um, uh, Sinclair No, Bill Tatro, a very remarkable person, an economist, uh, who I have met for the first time, and I expect to have him on this show sometime in the near future. Um, a very, a very savvy, very bright uh, economist, uh, but one that thinks outside of the box, and is certainly not a um, uh, an establishment guy in the sense that he uh, that he just mimics what is being laid down from the Federal Reserve chief or the Treasury secretary, as it seems to be the case of so many. Uh, economist, mainstream economist. So we're looking forward to talking to him. But what I want to tell you is that you uh, 
even though you were not able to attend that conference, and, and some of you listening to me were at the conference, it was a really great meeting up with uh, a number of people that listen to this show, uh, would like to just say that you can sign up or you can uh, purchase the CDs that will have the speeches that all of us made at that conference. Again, Arch Crawford, Ian McAvity, Roger Wiegan, Sinclair No, Jim Lyles, Janice Dorn, Dan Watkins, and Bill Tatro, and myself. Uh, you can gain the speeches, and they're each one-hour speeches long. You can call 1-800-494-4149, 1-800-494-4149. Um, and the charge is $129 uh, for those um, uh, for those speeches, and I think uh, a lot of really great information, a lot of good advice uh, from all of the speakers. A real eclectic group of people, I would say. Certainly, uh, each and every person that spoke there have quite different ideas. I think there's a, a commonality in the sense that uh, most of us are very much free market orientated, libertarians, people that uh, are interested in limited government and, and optimum freedom for the individual. I think that's probably a common ground that runs through most of the people, most of the speakers at the show, and certainly many, if not most, of the attendees. Uh, but uh, you might do well. Again, that's a number. If you'd like to listen to those speeches, you can do it by CD 1-800-494-4149, uh, and it's $129. Now, uh, in just a couple of minutes, we'll be talking to Chen Lin. At the end of the show, uh, the second half of the hour, Roger Wiegand will be joining me. Uh, we'll be getting Roger's take on a number of the major markets that he comments on every week in my newsletter as well as his own newsletter, and we're going to ask him about some uh, where he sees some of the big markets going uh, in the second uh, half of today's show. Uh, and in the closing minutes of today's show, I just uh, came across a six-cent stock, uh, a company that is a recommendation in my newsletter, and they came out with um, uh, a new preliminary economic assessment that suggests this stock should be worth uh, probably six, seven, eight times its current share price, uh, and it's a, a company with a project in Nevada with a very strong management team. So I'll tell you, uh, make some comments, uh, time permitting, at the very end of this stage today's show when I wrap up the show. But now we're going to go to a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk with Chen Lin. So don't go away. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the DuParquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Miranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded. 
Prodigy Gold is transitioning from Gold Explorer to Mine Developer. We are well-funded, located in stable eastern Canada. The Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year, strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway, and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www.prodigygold.com and read more. Prodigy Gold, today's discovery, tomorrow's future. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me uh, this uh, during this segment one of my two partners. Uh, Chen Lin is joining me now, and Roger Wiegand will be with me in the second half of today's show. Uh, but Chen, is re- it's really good to have him with me. Chen uh, has, done, has had a remarkable track record, as I've mentioned uh, many times in this show, and as I just talked uh, again about it uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, taking $5,400 of his wife's IRA back in 2003 and turning that into $1.8 million at the end of March. Uh, and uh, so we like to uh, to have people that are winners come on this show, people that have that are independent thinkers. Probably that's the commonality more than anything else on this show. I'm not interested in the mainstream stuff that you get off of CNBC and the like. I mean, that's free. You can get that. Uh, anytime you want, um, but we like to provide something on the internet that is a little different than what you get from these big paid advertisers, which is really what you're getting infomercials. Well, anyway, I guess I'm giving my own infomercial, and I better shut up and let Chen Lin talk. Chen, welcome again to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Yeah, thank you, Jay. Really good to have you. Now, we, uh, I know that your favorite stock, and it is one of my favorites as well, is Mart Resources. And Mart Resources trades on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol MMT. It's on the over-the-counter in the U.S. where I've purchased it under the symbol MAUXF. 337 million shares outstanding and stock uh, trading at about $1.16, I believe, today, giving a market cap around $387 million. Uh, so, uh, but the company just came out with some really good uh, earnings today. So, uh, Chen, I'm wondering if you could comment on the company's earnings report they just came out with. Yes, uh, last year, last year it earned 21 cents. Uh, its cash flow is 43 cents. Mm-hmm. So, uh, basically, you know, that, that was last year results. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right now they're pumping twice as much as oil. They were based on 7,000 barrels per day. Right now they're pumping about 15,000 barrels. Mm-hmm. And the oil price they realized last year is the 103 versus right now is over, uh, 120 because they're, they're getting a premium to brand price. So, mm-hmm. So it's pretty foreseeable their uh, their profit should be more than double. They should be uh, uh, earning at least about fifty cents per mm-hmm. share clip. Uh, that's kind of consistent with uh, the management was saying in a presentation 
a um, couple of days ago mm-hmm. uh, in New York. So mm-hmm. it's about they're earning about fifty cents at the current production. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stock is a dollar fourteen. Uh, the cash flow is probably about a dollar before tax. You know everything. So they're trading about a little bit over one times cash flow and then a little bit over two times earning, but. They are pumping oil at a restricted rate, right? They are pumping 15,000 the whole field, uh, but they probably capable of pumping, you know, 30, 40, even 50,000 barrel with all your discovery they have. Well, so, uh, so they're going to build a pipeline uh, with Shell. They, I think they did very, very close to announce the deal with Shell. So they will, they will, you know, they, they Shell will purchase uh, oil from them. And they just need to build about 50, 50 kilo uh, pipeline to, to connect. Well, well, let me get this straight now, Chen. You're saying that the company uh, earned um, about, well, they they earned 43 cents per share cash flow this year, uh, doing 7,000 barrels a day. Now they're doing 15,000 barrels a day at $120 as opposed to $103 last year. Mm-hmm. And and so you're suggesting that this year we could see we should see a double or more in the cash flow that comes from this company's operations right exactly double right. more than double the cash flow more than double the earning right okay now the next thing is you just said they can produce a lot more than that they're restricting their production right now they could re- produce how much a day uh, well, this is a little bit speculation, right? Uh, okay. uh, they, they will be easily produce uh, 30,000, maybe 40, maybe 50. So basically, double or triple the current production. Mm-hmm. But at least, but at least double the current production uh, if they didn't have the the distribution constraints, right? Exactly. They and just need to sign a deal with Shell and build a 50 kilo pipeline to Shell. Okay, and so. Um, and you believe that that's probably going to be forthcoming? Yeah, the management mentioned it's, it's very, very close. Uh, okay. In the okay, so management's talked about it. Have, uh, Chen, have you found that this is a management team that tends to deliver what it says it's going to deliver? Because that's always important. I mean, they are definitely delivering. There's no doubt about that. Right. But are they on the conservative side in terms of their guidance, or are they? They, they, uh, this uh, management team is a technical. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, he's been in Nigeria for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the they they deliver everything technical side, the pumping oil they deliver. Yeah. Uh, on, on the um, uh, they, what they are um, weakness they have you know if you look at it their weakness is the communication to shareholder mm-hmm. how to you know set expectation how to do explain the situation. Yeah. That needs some improvement, but. You know, everything they said, um, you know, two years ago, I owned it for over two years. Two years ago, they said uh, uh, they turned to true. Uh, that's good. So well, that's very important uh, to the companies that, that deliver what they say they're going to do. And, and I guess this is a company that doesn't need to go out and raise capital, so it doesn't need to sort of hype their stock and try to raise capital. They're able to – they're doing it. They're delivering, and that's the most important thing. Uh, so, do do they have a reserve? Have they published a reserve number, Chen? Yeah, they just published about 14 million barrels after tax. Though they they they, they do it some kind of way. They say, you know, this is our oil, but it's after tax. But that's uh, that's the before the major discovery they have in the recent well. Mm-hmm. So they're going to update the reserve again in uh, in 30 days mm-hmm. uh, to include the new new discovery. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of exploration potential here yet for this company. Is that right? 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, they step out, you know, drill deeper, horizontal well. So uh, it's, um, you know, the cars are lined up. So basically there's a lot of oil there. Uh, the key is just to go there and pump out the oil. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been some talk, I know, uh, of a dividend payment. Do you have any sense if that is likely to take place anytime soon? Yeah, my, my understanding is uh, they uh, in the presentation, the, uh, the CEO mentioned they're going to have a board meeting this week. Mm-hmm. So it could have been some announcement coming um, very soon, I would say, sometime mm-hmm. in May. Yeah. Well, we, of course, it's it's never done until it's done. But I I do know, um, having sat in on a meeting in New York myself several months ago, that the president of the company did did uh, suggest that was a likelihood that they would be uh, uh, providing some some uh, meaningful dividend relative to the share price. And I think uh, numbers of something like um, that were bantied about anyway uh, would make this a very significant uh, yield. And I think part of the reason that uh, investors may be interested in that is because it is in Nigeria, and Nigeria, in the minds of many people at least, is a very risky place to do business. How do you feel about the risk of Nigeria, Chen? Well, there, there are some risk, of course, but I think the risks are way overblown. Uh, people know Nigeria probably known for their email, the spam emails, and than real, you know, audio, and a lot of yeah. people couldn't pick out Nigeria from a, from a map, you know, and so I think it's way overblown. Uh, it's the fourth largest exporter of audio to the United States, so it's mm-hmm. crucial for the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned emails. I come to think of it, I I can remember getting emails from people trying to hustle hustle you for some money and. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, yeah, I remember bringing that up and mentioning it to some government official, and they said, yeah, that's very common, and never, not to worry about it, just don't respond to it. But it, they're little annoying emails, and I suppose that gives people the sense that it's a country of desperation, and I guess there are probably people that are very poor in the northern part of the country, but the oil uh, obviously is bringing in tremendous amounts of wealth to the to the country as well. Um, there has been some talk about... Um, uh, well, okay. So you got you got the prospects then of very rapid, or very significant growth over the next two or three years. I guess over the next year, even doubling, and then the possibility of some meaningful uh, dividend payments. Well, that's I, I believe. Would you say then that's still your your top pick, Chen? Is Mart? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, just think about they earn fifty cents a share, mm-hmm. so they can pay you know easily ten cents, twenty cents. Mm-hmm. Higher thirty cents, you know. Mm-hmm. Just think about because they earn, they come in fifty cents. Yeah, yeah. The cash flow is really cash significant. Flow. Now, let me ask you. The engineer is telling me I only have two minutes here. I wanted to ask you about your second uh, favorite stock, which is Pan Orient. Uh, Pan Orient uh, trades uh, POE on the Toronto POEFF, fifty-six point six million shares, two dollars sixty-five cents, giving it a market cap of well, I don't know what would that be. Um, hundred million, a little more than that, a little hundred and thirty, forty million dollars, something like that, Chen. Yes. And uh, what do you like about this one? Oh, it's just very, very deeply undervalued. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's net asset value of, of this asset. You know, just some of all the parts is over ten dollars, I believe, and they have one dollar cash. It's trading mm-hmm. about uh, you know less than two times cash flow. Uh, they have a very nice earning as well. You know, the cash flow close to a dollar. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, the, but that was the last year cash flow. But this year they have a new discovery, so uh, the cash flow could be much higher. So, uh, uh, and then they are they're drilling a very big target in Indonesia. 
uh, they are looking for a billion barrel of oil. Mm-hmm. Onshore. And I just want to remind everybody, the the greatest oil discovery in the past decade is the Petrobras. It's a mm-hmm. offshore Brazil. Uh, the, the pre-salt target that hit one billion barrel of oil, right? Mm. The greatest oil discovery is offshore. It takes a decade to develop. And Powerin is looking for onshore in Indonesia, one billion barrel oil. Wow. And they have been, you know, the company has been uh, working on that for four or five years in the past. Finally, they start drilling. They're drilling right now. Result, the first well result should come out in a couple of weeks. So, All right, uh, Chen. Uh, unfortunately, Chen, um, we're we're out of time. We've got to have you back uh, again sometime real soon to pick up on this. But I would like to remind our listeners that you can uh, you can take advantage of Chen's uh, Chen's expertise and, and his knowledge by subscribing to that letter. Call Claudio Bossi at seven one eight four five seven fourteen twenty six seven one eight four five seven one four two six. There's so much more Chen has to tell us. Unfortunately, we are out of time. But don't go away. We're going to be right back with Richard Duncan. Uh, who's written the book, The New Depression, The Breakdown of the Paper Money Economy. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Richard Duncan. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the Duparquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Naranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded. Prodigy Gold is transitioning from gold explorer to mine developer. We are well-funded. Located in stable eastern Canada, the Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year, strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway, and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www.prodigygold.com. ProdigyGold.com and read more. Prodigy Gold. Today's discovery, tomorrow's future. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, 
Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Richard Duncan. He is the author of The New Depression, The Breakdown of the Paper Money System. And a previous book that I am familiar with uh, that he wrote was The Dollar Crisis. And after reading that book, I was convinced that Richard was one of the few people who had worked for major banking institutions who really understood the global economy, what, why it was in trouble, uh, and that it was, in fact, in trouble. And he predicted in 2003, uh, his first book, or the book that I'm first familiar with, The Dollar Crisis, that we were going to be heading for trouble. And indeed, by 2008, with the Lehman Brothers crisis, it was apparent to everybody that we had big problems in the global monetary system. Um, I felt then, after the Lehman Brothers, uh, that uh, incident that uh, Richard Duncan would be widely understood and that just perhaps we might have some policy changes. Unfortunately, it seems to me at least uh, that nothing has changed all that much. Um, Richard wrote another book uh, on the global financial crisis in 2008 titled The Corruption of Capital, and I'm sorry to say that I have not yet read that, but I certainly intend to do so in the near future and perhaps comment on it in this show. Um, I have reviewed his uh, his latest book, The New Depression, and I think he has once again identified the problems correctly. What I do want to get a better understanding from Richard uh, about is his solution to this problem, uh, what policies he thinks uh, could save the day or at least keep us from the worst sort of outcome in the future. Uh, and so that's one of the things that we want to ask him about. Just a little background on Richard for those of you who may not be familiar with him. Uh, he started his career in Hong Kong in 1986. Um, he served there as uh, global head of investment strategy at ABN Amaral Asset Management in London and worked for the World Bank in Washington, D.C., headed equity research department in Bangkok and consulted for the IMF. He is now chief economist at Black Horse Asset Management in Singapore. Richard has appeared frequently on CNBC, CNN, BBC, and Bloomberg Television and is well known, uh, is, is a very well known speaker. He studied literature and economics at Vanderbilt University in 1983 and international finance at Babson College in 1986. And between the two spent a year backpacking around the world, perhaps one of the more educational experiences for him or for anybody to be able to do that, to see how the world really, really operates. For um, I would really suggest that you go to richardduncaneconomics.com uh, to, uh, to follow up with this discussion today and to, uh, and to really check out his work because it is, I think, very insightful and something that you're not going to find from most mainstream folks. Welcome, Richard. It's really good to have you with us on Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Jay, thank you for that very kind introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. It is really great to have you. It's an honor having you. Um, in preparing for a discussion, I watched a CNBC interview you did in 2008 after the Lehman Brothers crisis. Uh, many of the mainstream media would like us to, to believe that the global economy is on the mend, but your new book, The New Depression, suggests otherwise. Could you explain? Yes, right now we are on government life support. We would have already collapsed into a new Great Depression had the U.S. government not started running trillion-dollar budget deficits and, in part, financing them with trillions of dollars of paper money creation. So this life support has, is the thing that is keeping us from collapse, and that's good that we are not collapsing. The problem is, is this life support cannot go on forever. 
And if it stops or if it is withdrawn, as soon as it is withdrawn, the economy then begins to collapse. And um, we really are in danger of reliving the, the, the worst of the 1930s and potentially even the 1940s if the right policies are not put into place to prevent that from occurring. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly when I flip on CNBC during the day or even Bloomberg and listen to Tom Keene and other, other people interview various people, we have sort of a, a mixed bag. There's always the eternal optimists that believe that current policies are, are working and they point to improvements in, uh, uh, albeit very slowly, in the labor market, but more in terms of corporate profits and in terms of the stock market itself, which has risen fairly significantly from from its uh, 2009 March bottoms. Uh, but uh, but you don't buy it. So what is what is wrong with with what we're doing? We are, uh, you know, it's sort of the old notion of pumping money into the system. We've got interest rates that are enormously low. I mean, Mrs. Taylor and I refinanced our house once again. Um, you know, it's something like three and five eighths, I think, um, for a 20-year mortgage. What um, what's wrong with this picture, and why are we in trouble? Well, let's take a look at the the big picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, our economy, the U.S. economy, is roughly $16 trillion in size. Now, every economy is made up of just four big parts. The biggest part is personal consumption expenditure. That's how much normal people spend. In the U.S., that's about 70% of GDP. Next is business investment, which is about 16% of GDP. Next is net trade, or exports minus imports. In the U.S., that's a big negative number, about minus 4%. And the rest is government spending. Now, as of now, so add those four, it's just arithmetic, add those four things together, and that is our economy. Mm-hmm. But as of now, the, the U.S. budget deficit this year is going to be $1.3 trillion. Out of the $16 trillion, $1.3 is due to the budget deficit. Mm-hmm. What is that, 7 or 8%? Mm-hmm. Now, many people would like to see us immediately slash that, preferably bring it down to zero. Well, just going to the extreme, if we did take that down to zero, then the economy would not be $16 trillion, it would be $14.7 trillion. It would shrink immediately by 7 or 8%. But that's not all. On top of that, when the government spends much, much less money, fewer, far fewer people would have jobs, and so personal consumption would also contract very sharply, mm-hmm. and therefore business profits would contract, and so business investment would contract. So in other words, the economy would immediately spiral into a 15% contraction, unemployment would move up toward 20%, and then things would become worse next year and the year after that. And the American economy would collapse and we would be back into a Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Well, you, I think one of the things that really attracted me was your understanding uh, that things really sort of came off rails, that we came off the rails, so to speak, or the economy, the global economy started to change significantly. Uh, in with Lyndon Johnson. Could you explain that to our listeners? Yes. During the 1960s, primarily under Johnson, the U.S. government started spending too much money, both at home on the domestic social welfare programs and abroad on the Vietnam War. And this caused the budget to go into deficit. It also resulted in an increasingly large U.S. trade deficit, Earlier on, the U.S. had always generally had a trade surplus, but as we spent too much money at home, this overfueled domestic demand and resulted in more imports and a 
and a growing trade deficit, which resulted in more dollars going abroad. Well, in 1968, Johnson asked Congress to change the law. Up until that time, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, had been required to maintain at least 25% gold backing for every dollar in circulation. Johnson said that's no longer necessary. To, we don't need any gold backing, he said, to tell us what is the worth of our money. And Congress obliged, and they removed that requirement for the Fed to keep any gold backing. And that removal of gold backing from the dollar, we went then from a commodity-based monetary system to a pure fiat-based or paper money system. That changed the nature of money, and that allowed an explosion of credit to occur. I mean, for instance, total credit or total debt, they're really two sides of the same coin, total, total debt, that includes government debt, household sector debt, corporate debt, and, and business debt, financial sector debt, all the debt in the country. It first went through $1 trillion in 1964. Over the next 43 years, it expanded 50 times from $1 trillion to $50 trillion in 2008. Amazing. And that explosion of credit literally created the world we live in. It made us all much more prosperous than we would have been otherwise. It financed globalization. It allowed Asia to pursue its very successful strategy of export-led growth. The problem is, in 2008, the private sector became incapable of repaying its debt. And at that point, uh, the, this new depression, as I call it, began. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in, in Johnson's notion that we didn't need to have a gold backing anymore. I mean, I could understand it from a political point of view because we had both guns and butter. He wanted to start the Great Society program. He wanted to engage in a, you know, in a war, in the Vietnam War, and not tax people to pay for those things. So, but did he, was there some academic backing? He must have had some professor, some academician somewhere saying that there was really no need for gold to be backed, or for our currency to be backed by gold. There must be proponents that provided that ammunition for Johnson. Johnson was a very practical man, mm -hmm. and it was only in 1968 that the Fed actually came up against that binding constraint. After World War Two, the U.S. had most of the gold in the world, so the Fed had no trouble backing the dollars with this 25% reserve ratio of gold backing. But by 1968, they came up against that, that constraint, and that meant the Fed would either have had to have stopped issuing more dollars or somehow it would have had to have obtained more gold. And if they had stopped issuing more dollars, then, of course, that would have been a very binding and uh, constraint on the ability of the government to, to issue more debt or to finance its domestic and foreign spending programs. Mm -hmm. And so once they met that constraint, Johnson uh, re just removed the constraint to allow him to spend more. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, the Fed has now issued another 20 times as many paper dollars as existed in 1968, roughly mm -hmm. another 900 billion paper dollars. And that was the foundation upon which this $50 trillion of credit was built. It wouldn't have been possible to have so much credit had we remained on a gold-backed monetary system. Mm. But it seemed to me a, a basic dishonesty with the American people in that sense, wasn't it? Uh, you know, if we could just sort of create debt or create print money, so to speak, uh, then we didn't have to tax people for the goodies. Wasn't there sort of a, a political deception of the populace, perhaps? 
Yes, I, I think I think so. I mean, I, I'm not certain that Johnson viewed it that way. I think mm. Johnson tended to view the world whichever way benefited Johnson. Mm. I'm not sure he put a lot of intellectual thought into it. Uh-huh. But what this change did, not only did it make the, make the global economy and the U.S. economy much bigger over the, the next 40 years as credit expanded, but I really think it changed the nature of our economic system itself. The system we have now is is no longer capitalism. Mm-hmm. Capitalism was an economic system in which the government played very little role. Mm-hmm. It was entirely driven by the private sector. Mm-hmm. And the growth dynamic worked like this. Businessmen would invest. Some of them would make a profit. They would save that profit or accumulate that capital, hence capitalism, mm-hmm. and invest again. Mm-hmm. And this process going over and over again created growth. It was mm-hmm. slow and difficult, but that's the way capitalism worked. Well, our economic system hasn't worked anything like that for decades. Mm-hmm. Now in America, the U.S., at the federal government level, the federal government spends 25, 24% of GDP, and the central bank creates the money and manipulates its value. Mm-hmm. But in addition to that, the growth dynamic is completely different now. It's no longer investment profit and savings that drives the economy. Our economic dynamic is driven through credit creation and consumption and more credit creation and more consumption and more credit creation and more consumption. Mm-hmm. And this has worked miracles for decades. It's created much more rapid growth than would have been possible under capitalism. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, this new credit-fueled economic paradigm, which I call creditism, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, it now looks like creditism has the full extent of its potential to create any more growth because mm-hmm. the private sector can't bear any more debt. Mm-hmm. Well, well, certainly there was, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the economist at Morgan Stanley, uh, Stephen um, Roach, Stephen Roach uh, who was warning about this uh, during, you know, before the crisis arose about how we were running these huge deficits. The United States was, we had easy credit, we pushed interest rates down, we gave credit cards to everybody, we consumed, we imported from China. Uh, I believe what you're saying and what you're suggesting in your in your book is that this consumption has to be re, we have to sort of go back to an investment strategy rather than a consumption strategy. Well, yes, I think that's that's right. But it's, we can't go back the way we came. Our system has been driven by credit expansion. Mm-hmm. Now. There are many people now in, in, in America who consider themselves Austrian economists. Mm-hmm. Uh, von Mises uh, wrote a number of uh, very, very brilliant books describing how credit creates an artificial boom. Mm-hmm. But he also explained that the day always comes when credit stops expanding. Mm-hmm. And when that day arrives, then what he called the depression begins. And are we at that day, Richard? Are we at that day now? Well, we are almost at that day because the private sector can't bear any more debt, mm-hmm. so its credit can't expand. Mm-hmm. It's only the expansion of government debt that has prevented the depression from occurring now. Mm-hmm. For sure. And For so, sure. If we, so that's where we are now. If we suddenly reduce government debt and the private sector can't take on more debt, then the real danger is, See, when von Mises was writing, we were still back on a gold standard, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so 
you could only expand credit for a relatively short period of time in those days because gold was money. There was only a limited amount of money available. Mm-hmm. You could expand it for a little while, creating a short-term boom. And when it stopped expanding, that created a relatively short-term bust. And it didn't all generally do that much harm mm-hmm. compared to where we are now. Mm-hmm. But on this credit system that we have, creditism, due to this $50 trillion expansion of credit over the last four, four and a half decades, we've had a four and a half decade mega boom. And if this mega boom now bust, we're going to have a very severe depression, at least as bad as the Great Depression and potentially worse. Do you think that we're still in a depression? Are we in a depression now, I should say, after Lehman Brothers? You know, things have seemed to have gotten better with this new stimulus, with trillions of dollars of deficit spending and so forth. Uh, Are we in a depression now, and you're worried that we might go into a greater depression? Well, things are certainly bad enough, regardless of how you care to define uh, whether it's a severe recession or a depression. After all, we have more than 8% unemployment plus, 15% 15% underemployment, and the reason it's not much worse than this already is because the government has trillion-dollar budget deficits and is creating trillions of dollars through quantitative easing one and two. Mm-hmm. So depression, severe recession, great recession, whatever you want to call it, it's bad enough. But the real fear is that things are going to become very much worse than, than they are at the moment because the government can't continue this life support indefinitely. Already the U.S. government's debt is roughly 100% of GDP. Now, okay, Japan has 240% government debt to GDP. I'm not saying the U.S. government can increase its debt up to that level, but there seems little reason to fear that they couldn't increase the debt up to 150% of GDP. In other words, they can take us easily, they can keep doing this for the next five years. maybe even 10 years, but sometime around 10 years out, the U.S. government is going to be just as bankrupt as Greece. Mm-hmm. And, and at that point, then very, very bad things will begin to happen. Well, to what extent uh, do you think that quantitative easing, or, or to what extent do you think the U.S. or the Fed is now purchasing U.S. treasuries? Uh, and to what extent do you think the Chinese and other creditor nations are losing their appetite for the U.S. dollar? Well, let's talk about China. The reason China buys U.S. dollars is not because of any appetite to take risk in America. The reason they buy the reason they buy Treasury bonds is because they have dollars, and the reason they have dollars is because they have a $300 billion a year trade surplus mm-hmm. with the United States. Mm-hmm. Their manufacturers sell their goods in the United States. They take back their trade surplus, which is $300 billion into China. Now, they would like to convert that $300 billion a year into the local currency, the Chinese yuan. But if they did that in a free market, the Chinese currency would quadruple in value, and that would kill their export-led growth, and their economic bubble would implode. Mm -hmm. So the Chinese central bank, the PBOC, they intervene, and they buy all of the dollars coming into China at a fixed exchange rate so their currency doesn't appreciate. In other words, they manipulate their currency to hold down its value so that they can continue importing or exporting more and more to the United States. And so in that way, the central bank accumulates $300 billion a year in dollars. Mm-hmm. And by the way they do that, ask yourself, where did the central bank of China get $300 billion worth of 
Chinese yuan mm-hmm. to buy those dollars. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, their central bank, they just created that money from thin air. Mm-hmm. So they're doing their own quantitative easing on an even bigger scale than the U.S. has been doing. Mm-hmm. For, and once they have the $300 billion last year, then they must buy treasury bonds with them or some other U.S.-denominated asset mm-hmm. if they want to earn any interest on them. Mm-hmm. So it's not through any sort of charity that they are buying our assets. It's because they have, a do- they have the dollars mm-hmm. and they want to earn interest on them. Mm-hmm. And as long as they want to keep their people employed in the factories, tens of millions of Chinese factory workers are working in Chinese factories making things to sell to the Americans. Mm-hmm. They're going to continue to have dollars, and they're going to continue to buy U.S. dollar-denominated assets. Mm-hmm. So their asset will not wane. To, I mean, there is a, a recognized need for the Chinese to start stimulating uh, domestic demand. Is is that something that's taking place to, to sort of pick up the slack in uh, a slower U.S. economy? Well, yes, they have the right idea. The, the problem is, is the demographic trends are so adverse within China and globally. There are mm-hmm. just so many people coming out of the countryside into the cities or so many young people coming into the cities growing up who want jobs that the, now in China at least 80% of the people earn less than $10 a day. And globally, the global you could say the average wage in the manufacturing sector for manufacturing workers is maybe $6 a day. You can find hundreds of millions of people in India who would be glad to work for $5 a day. Mm-hmm. There are not hundreds of millions of manufacturing jobs in the whole world. Mm-hmm. But because of very adverse, adverse demographic trends globally, there's extreme downward pressure on global wages now that we have a global economy. And that makes it very hard for China to meaningfully increase its wages without having the jobs relocate from China into Vietnam, Indonesia, or India. Mm. Fascinating. It, it, it sounds to me like there is there are huge deflationary pressures in the global in the global markets. Richard, we're um, running out of time here for this segment. I'm wondering if you could stay with us um, after the break for a few more comments. There's so much more I would like to ask you. Could you stay with us for a little longer? Sure, sure, I'd be happy to. Great. Okay, folks, don't go away. We'll be right back after the commercial break with Richard Duncan. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused, Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARWJF. 